kids, it's the Occult Mystery Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast, where we dive into all the secret magic behind the mouse. This is Matt here. Joining me today, as always, is Thomas, the paranoid American. <laughs> uh, you're turning the paranoia on everyone else now. Is that is that what I it was going to try to do the Mickey one, but it's it would be embarrassing unless <laughs> I practiced it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's, that's better than I can do. What, what was I having to do yesterday? Oh, oh, I did Return of the Jedi, and where I we usually do story summaries, but I was like, why don't I just read the prologue, they like the screen crawl? And they're like, do it in a George Lucas voice. I, I got to do my George Lucas. That was fun. <laughs> I've <laughs> never been great at voice impressions, so it, it fascinates me when someone's really good at it. I, I don't know if I'm really good at it, but um, uh, just while I'm plugging my own podcast in the Twilight Zone, when I make my guests do the Rod Serling introductions. Um, and then there was something where I think we were going to do the closing. I said, I'll try doing it. And I just, I couldn't do the impression at all. So, <laughs> you know, I, I asked someone else to do it every week, don't I? I was thinking at the breakfast table of doing this one in a, in a Roger Rabbit voice the entire time, but that would, people would turn this off within five minutes in that case. <laughs> Not because you of the movie put it or to anything. The test. No, 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 no. I, don't want to do that. Um, also, I didn't practice my Roger Rabbit. When I did the George Lucas one, I spent the five minutes waiting on Zoom, like watching 80s George Lucas interviews and like trying to match it. So <laughs> it, it's funny because if you really try, if you're not a professional doing it and you try to talk outside of your normal voice, you'll just kind of um, have fatigue immediately. And the longer you try to do it, the the more fatigue that you'll start to kind of have. Like you'll actually start stressing your vocal cords and the muscles because you got to shape them in ways that you haven't trained yourself to do it naturally. So it like on one aspect, it's really hard to do because of that. But then on the other one, it's like people that are good at it, you kind of have to know that they practice it a lot. Like they're always talking in different voices and like shifting it around. Well, that makes me sound doubly insane because sometimes I'll get stuck in voices. Uh, like, like if I start talking like the Southern madman, I'll just start doing this all day. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, that'll happen sometimes. And I remember when I was, uh, I was once I taught it, I taught at a place where you're like, we'd get on boats and look for whales. So especially when we were on the schooner, I get stuck like in a pirate voice all day, you know, <laughs> like and start Sounds teaching, delightful. teaching lessons. <laughs> no, trying to shove R into like every word possible, you know. Well, you also work with kids, right? You teach uh, small children, so doesn't that play into, it, or do they not get any of the the pirate voices? Does it not uh, translate? Oh, they 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 like that, of course, yes. So yeah, that maybe that's why I am a little more voice conducive is because I um, uh, yeah, I teach kids and sometimes rock out crazy voices. Uh, one one of my other guys I podcast. That's awesome with. though, man, because those are the the cool teachers. One of the uh, other guys I podcast with who actually lives near here. So we were walking uh, up a mountain to a hot spring, right? And I, he was about 10 steps ahead. And I called him just practicing as Sean Connery, you know, to himself. <laughs> <laughs> so, it needs uh, to live on. It needs to live beyond Sean Connery, the voice impressions do. 
Um, I guess our voice man on on well front and center is is Charles Fleischer for Who Framed Roger Rabbit today's um film, which I guess I should also mention. This is like Mel Blanc's last you know working credit. He has more credits of archival audio later on, but I think this is his the last like you know he actually did it credit for, where he did all the Looney Tunes one last time. But, I mean that uh, he's the OG as far as uh I'm concerned. They're, he's not my all-time favorite cartoon voice, but Mel Blanc is like in the the Hall of Fame. He's kind of like the Babe Ruth. Yeah. Well, I was just about sp spurred out, you know, Charles Fleischer's the voice guy in this movie. I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 that's throwing shade." I mean, <laughs> Mel Blanc is also in the movie even if he's not the the lead, but uh yeah, this movie came out 88. Uh I would I bought into all the hype on it, right? I was like, I had a Roger Rabbit stuffed toy, even at age 10. Uh, <laughs> you know, I bought the I bought into game. the hype, too. I just don't remember what the hype was. I remember there was a sticker book. I remember there was definitely a video game, but I never got the, the LJN video games. Not because, like, we knew better, but just because I got, like, one a year, and it was almost never, it was almost always, like, a Mario or, like a like, a big one or a Zelda, you know? We were a um, PC house. There were two PC games. I actually, when I was looking at uh, stuff before this podcast, I, I there there's two, and I, I I had the one that was simply like named after the movie, and I, I think I was like playing it on the fourth grade computers, and and then almost failed science class in the fourth grade. So. Were they any good? Were the PC Roger Rabbit games good? One of them I never played. The the one I the other one I played a lot, but I mean, let a ten year old tell you if a game's good or not. Uh, the wiki page did say that the reviews were generally good and i remember having a good time with it so i get, like if i played it now i'd probably be like what is this crap right but <laughs> you know at the time that's, it was that's fun. most yeah i i distinctly do remember playing the nes version of this like rent you know renting it back when you would rent a game for like three or four days and then drop it back off but there was a particular scene where you went into the club where jessica rabbit is singing and if you looked under the table there would be an 800 number and if you actually called the 800 number which i did um it would tell you something in her voice about giving dogs food or something like you could find dog food you could find a steak and if you threw a steak at a dog it let you get by a certain place in the game if you didn't figure it out on your own but it was just that was a mind-blowing thing to me because i couldn't have been more than eight years old at that point it was probably a little bit younger and the fact that that my dad called a video game character that was based on a movie character but it was actually a cartoon inside of a movie and then the video game and then like the phone call of the voice it blew my mind because i mean i was a i guess i was a very slow learner and very optimistic but i, I guess i really believed that cartoon characters were alive somewhere out in like our world out in our reality you could actually talk to one of them and i think i've outed myself before but i also remember believing that the guess who board game talked to you if you remember the original commercial and then afterwards they added a little uh disclaimer that was like game pieces do not actually talk well that was like because the kids like me were heartbroken when we found out that the game pieces were just printed on cardboard and they didn't actually talk back so i i don't know if it talk. was just me but but anyways this roger rabbit movie represents to me like a defining moment when I guess like I still believed in, you know, Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and Roger Rabbit and in like a very realistic way. Maybe see, I was like maybe on being I, I guess like 
a year or two older i was like mm -hmm. on the slightly other track where i did the math wrong i would have been nine actually and um i do remember seeking out the book you know who censored roger rabbit like maybe this is the first time i understood like sometimes people take a book and make it into a movie and i was like oh i can get a preview which the book is very different and not great reading for a nine-year-old so <laughs> right. yeah I, I actually didn't even know about that this was based on a book and only loosely based on a book until i watched it and started putting notes together for this episode yeah, the book really confused me because the idea that the book would be so wildly different definitely didn't make sense to a nine-year-old. <laughs> and and you know what's uh, interesting, too, is I don't think that we're missing out on much. I think the movie did a better job of telling a story, even though it was based on this other idea. I think I like the movie's story better. And I think maybe the author did, too, because the author did continue on that series and then ends up writing like a Jessica Rabbit solo novella but he retcons in like every single book and he did it so often that it almost became like a trademark that like, what, what is he going to retcon in the next book? So it it's so non sequitur that there's no reason that you would actually need to read into it other than being like, Oh, huh? Yeah. I see where, you know, the general premise and the general characters came from. I mean, there's honestly, there's plenty of times the movie's better than the book. I would, uh, the Godfather, the book is garbage. Uh, I would say the shining I'm on team you know team kubrick and 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 what whichever of the 18 theories you want to put onto that movie have you ever read clockwork orange um yes i have i would say i like both of those i i don't know if i'd say the movie's better uh right, it's I, a hard one it's a yeah, very that's hard a, one that's why i didn't cite that one but yeah uh the shining the godfather um Cause, cause two, in the 2001 too, is definitely better in movie form although they were like written concurrently anyway so uh, well, that that was the Arthur C. Clarke short story, right? Well, it was, a, it was a short story, but then they wrote the screenplay and the novel 2001 uh, kind of concurrently. So oh, I didn't know about the novel and the novel, you know, like once you get to the Stargate, it's like explaining everything, which kind of ruins exposition. The whole... Yeah, it's just <laughs> like because you can't be like and then, you know, psychedelic colors start morphing into spirals instead of zigzags you know that wouldn't... it's a good point yeah. it's a good point yeah <laughs> although you can you kind of can as long as you don't describe it in that sort of way that, <laughs> honestly that's a it's a good segue because another one of the reasons why who framed roger rabbit i think is such a great movie is that it holds up and i think it holds up beyond nostalgia because if you look at reviews from people that haven't seen it before it does seem to still be favorably looked on for a whole bunch of reasons, not just for the actual technical prowess of it, you know, being able to blend the cartoons with the live action, but the acting is incredible. The guy that played Mario, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. What's his name? The guy that played Mario in the, the Bob Super Mario Brothers movie. A Bob uh, Hoskins. Tom, Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins plays this role like, it's real, you know, like he's actually talking to a real partner. And I think maybe it was, you know, easier because he maybe he was talking like a little green stick or something, but he goes oh, no. all out. It, it's much so better serious. than that. It's much better than that. Charles Fleischer was on set behind the camera doing the voices. So he, he was talking to Roger Rabbit real time. And Charles Fleischer decided to do this while wearing a Roger Rabbit costume. <laughs> and this actually did drive... Bob Hoskins insane. 
like with this crazy man in a rabbit that. suit on the other side of the cabin. <laughs> you know, Bob Hoskins like start like I guess he wouldn't break character or something. Uh, Charles Fleischer sounds like a very strange man. So uh, one, I'm going to agree. This movie holds up for at least a year after it came out. Age nine, age ten year old Matt probably said this was my favorite movie for a good year before and probably you know until Terminator Two showed up. Probably let's say that. Um, <laughs> so and that that held it for a little while but um i feel like this movie hasn't held up in the like cultural zeitgeist so much it's weirdly forgotten when you watch it it's great but because uh roger rabbit spent about five years as one of the big six with minnie and mickey and goofy you know he got a, an actual ride at disneyland i mean they were gonna he they started putting his shorts before movies and then somewhere about 1993 it just kind of fizzled out and everyone forgot about roger rabbit well i th i think that's because roger rabbit was this big ensemble thing and that was kind of a big event and it was a big event for disney to be showing some of these you know characters being a little bit more mature i think disney's like haha we're gonna die or so like something it's something you wouldn't hear him say outside of this particular movie at least in that kind of time range but i think that we've had other big ensemble movies since then that maybe like nudge this one further and further back into nostalgia for just certain people like space jam uh came out that was like a big kind of nostalgia movie and even that one's been remade since then so i think that part of the big novelty of Roger Rabbit was just the uh, like the actual animation live action and the combination of all these different characters. It was Marvel versus Capcom too, in a certain way. Oh, yeah. And I think that after they burnt up that particular type of interest, um, maybe it just got less interesting, but I mean, on rewatches, it's still a great movie when I started it and and you see it's about like a minute, it's an hour and three quarters, right? Like an hour and 40 minutes and change. Yeah. And I was kind of excited. Usually that's like, okay, this better be pretty good. But um, it, it moves along very well. And I actually went back and watched some of the deleted scenes. There's like an infamous pig head scene uh, that actually explains a whole bunch of extra little context for the movie. But they cut it out because they said it felt like it slowed the movie down too much, which is a really good indication of they spent all that money. The scene's not even that bad but it would have slowed the movie down just a little bit. And it's already like a really nice paced movie. So that's, that's most of my comments on just like the movie itself. And I do have a whole bunch of cool sort of like occult references and, and breakdowns of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was looking where the production is usual, but we're just watching it. So it's like right on the sleeve. It's like, well, once you start thinking about how does this work, you quickly run into a lot of issues. Right. So, um, Oh, I did have. Oh, yeah. This I think one other thing that maybe had kids like us more interested is this was going to be a straight up Disney Walt Disney Productions film uh, until shortly before release when it was um, bumped over to Touchstone because it was a little more adult. So there were a bunch of kids that were kind of hyped up about it. And it's like, oh, this isn't just for you now. It's it's a it's a real movie. It's not a Disney movie, which. <laughs> I think, you know, if to an eight or a nine year old, that's pretty enticing. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was like an adult cartoon movie. And I I mean, if you watch it back now as an adult, I think it's it because it holds up. They did a very good job with it. It was I was surprised to find out. I did look a little bit in the technical stuff that 
they went so over budget that they had a lot more planned and they had even more um like technical feats and better special effects planned but they ended up going way over budget originally and um had to like cut back i guess well they told um you know eisner and katzenberg this movie is going to cost 50 million dollars and they were like screw off okay we'll do it for 30 million which still made it the most expensive animated film at that time and then the budget creep crept up to 40 million eisner even thought about just canceling the thing and uh it did end up costing 50 million so it's like you know kind of a we told you so i guess uh done hollywood style <laughs> i i love this and it's also a movie that criticizes hollywood on top of that and I mean, on like a, a slightly darker note, because this is the occult Disney uh, podcast, this is one of the few rides that was had such a horrific accident in the park that Disney was not able to cover it up. They actually tried to cover it up and had to settle out of court because of some of the, the, the horrible decisions that were made, which included calling a supervisor in the break room while they were on their break before calling 911. While I think it was like a like a five or six year old um, got dragged under the the crazy taxi, so there was like attached to this little track ride, like most Disney rides are, and someone fell out of the side of it, got caught under, and dragged for ten feet or something, um, and succumbed to that like three or four years later. Or so it was it it was like a, a really horrible tragic thing that people are still talking about today. If you find uh the the person's name i'll bring it up when we get there but yeah i was sitting there thinking is there another roger rabbit ride i don't see how the toontown spin can be fatal but i guess that you just explained it <laughs> yeah i mean th there was a kid um the details are still murky again because it got settled out of court so there's no like official um sort of like court documentation of who said what but the idea was that they put a kid outside on the little ride or inside the little car and the mom was next to them and you're supposed to put the kids on the inside and the adults on the outside because there's like this little gap between the door and this is also before they had skirts on the bottom of the ride so the mom apparently bent down to get something and might have like you know pushed the kid out of the side a little bit when she bent down to grab it thinking that he would just get pinned up and, you know, kind of like resist like almost any other ride you've ever been on. But when she did that, he pops out the side of the ride, but then there's no safety mechanism to like stop it. So it just keeps going slowly. And I guess he like rolled under it somehow because there's no skirt and it just kept going and going and people were screaming and there was like a streak of, you know, remnants and it, it was a horrific, horrific scene. And, uh, it was it was so bad that Disney, like I said, they couldn't hide this one. That's one of the few very real Disney conspiracies I believe in that people that get hurt, maimed or or die in the park, they usually get somehow like shipped out of the park or somehow like the official records will say, oh, well, technically they died, you know, 50 feet outside of Disney property. So it was the county's fault. Uh, it's, it's the wire. If you've ever seen the wire. Well, Florida's got their uh, utilidors, right? So. <laughs> What are you doors? The um, massive corridors under the park. Oh, right, right. Do you know the, you know what the reason for? I mean, there's a bunch of theories, but the official reason for those is that they don't ever want to see one of the characters 
just walking from one part of the park to the other because in like the center of the park in those transitional areas they're not really themed and there's something way more magical about disney being able to just like pop up at one side of the park and then pop up at another side of the park but it's also very coordinated so they'll never have two different mickeys on the same um like at, up at the same time so if mickey like wants to leave tomorrowland He'll go down into the tunnels and then another Mickey maybe taking over the shift will merge in some other land. And they do that to just make sure that that, that magic is never lost. So kids are never like, wait, didn't I just see you here? How did you get, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that that's the one I heard. Um, although uh, one, here's, here's just one I heard a few days ago that's mildly amusing as well. Uh, this is Disneyland because uh, this is the Matterhorn. And apparently a lot of the um, trees in Frontierland are cut into Matterhorn shapes in order to block the Matterhorn from sight lines. <laughs> so you have this tree just covering up the Matterhorn, like, you know, relatively perfectly. So you can't see it. And I was like, yeah, because they, they don't want you in reality. They want you in, in Disneyland. They want you in their trance, which is kind of the case. So <laughs> um, did you see this one, the Roger Rabbit in the theater, just out of curiosity? I, I do know that we made it opening night. I, I was at least able to get my dad onto the uh, hype wagon. <laughs> no, I remember seeing this one with my grandparents, and it was, yeah, it was like one of one of the earliest memories that I still think is real, and I haven't completely distorted it out of, of reality. But I remember going to see this movie and then being hyped, you know. I thought I was going to be a cartoon character because I was still at that age we've talked before if i went and saw the three ninjas i was going to be a ninja for the next week no matter what and if i saw a basketball movie i was going to be a basketball star for the next week no i was always clear i wasn't going to be a basketball player so i'm terrible at basketball <laughs> no but i know but all it takes is just lower that net down until it's almost like waist level and then you just feel like you can do all kinds of crazy slam dunks and you, know, you can pretend that you're like eight feet tall I mean, I guess people like us still want to be cartoon characters, but what, whatever. <laughs> it's a real thing, man. Well, I want, we're going to get into that, too. This, there were some weird things that came up in the research for this movie. Um, I guess the placing of 1947 is mostly to uh, get the, you know, the, the whole streetcar thing, right? The, the changing of public transportation. And I'm from Atlanta, which has relatively terrible public transportation same florida uh, same so yeah. we can't really go under sea level so uh, underground and, is not even an option here and where i live in japan uh they say you know compared to tokyo or something oh you guys have horrible tra public transportation but i i can use it for a whole lot of things it's actually useful i um, you know we a lot of time when we end these i'm like i gotta go get the train right so now i do i guess uh, get the benefits of public transportation a little bit more I'm also willing to walk absurd distances, so there, there's that too. But um, yeah, L.A. I, I haven't actually been to L.A., but you know, Atlanta, L.A. are extremely like you got to have a car cities. So I mean, Atlanta certainly. Yeah, I've so. I've been to those places. I've I've been to a lot of places that have public transport, and I think, in my own opinion, the best one I've ever been to is probably D.C. because D.C. they actually have like subways that connect to hotels and connect to businesses and connect to the actual places that you're going like i think that some of them are like almost open right up into a shopping mall and they kind of maintain it a little bit better than some of the other states that i've been in cities like new york city is probably the worst example of public transit outside of if you start getting into like chicago and maybe in some of the the californian cities too but 
Um, I think that DC actually like knocks it out of the park when it comes to the public transit. And the and the in case anyone's wondering, like, what are you talking about public transit? The most obvious, I guess, conspiracy theory that's baked into Who Framed Roger Rabbit is that it's not only is the movie literally about a guy that buys up the train car um you know business just to shut it down by putting freeways in its place but a lot of the symbolism in the movie is references to how this actually did happen years way earlier um around the time span that, that you're talking about and like right in the 1940s or so where they had the red line specifically which is the same thing they call it in this movie yeah like if i were just thinking in hollywood terms i'd probably Put this movie a few years earlier you know like maybe like pre-world war one time-ish i think you just in terms it had of a, a hard uh dick tracy feel to it for sure yeah yeah so i, I guess noir film noir though is a little more of a late 40s early 50s thing well, so. and, and they also have uh like a little hideaway room that was an indication of like prohibition had maybe ended somewhat recently um so i don't know it it, it felt like it match like a perfect little time period where it could be just vague enough where it could just be early 1900s and they didn't have to really define it beyond that because all the cartoon characters especially being in color made it feel way more recent than 1930s you know but that's betty uh, boop's problem right the reality was yeah exactly (laughs) um yeah actually even though there was such a perfect storm i mean once you get donald duck daffy duck you know Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse in the same shot, you're already doing like, I mean, God, think about that happening now. I mean, <laughs> with streaming rights and stuff, I mean, you that's just, that wouldn't happen. So this movie did come out at a perfect time for that. But some, some care, I have a list here, some characters they could not get, which um, weirdly they could not get Popeye, which seems a little strange. Uh, <laughs> there we go. And these are ones that they actually wanted and just were denied for whatever reason. Yeah, they kind of wanted everybody. Oh, I they wanted what did they want. Those are characters that are actually. And sorry, I found the page where I, I do remember Popeye being someone they specifically couldn't get. And there were a couple other just like really bizarre ones where you're like really like Terry Tune characters. It's like you couldn't get those characters. That's kind of weird, but whatever. <laughs> um. Very interesting is some of the other actors because Bob Hoskins is, I mean, great actor, not an A-lister, you know, for a, a very expensive movie that made a lot of money. So um, I couldn't imagine anyone else in this role, to be honest. They could. No, I, I couldn't either. I mean, I think he's perfect. Yeah. In so this who, movie. who else was on their short list that, that wasn't um, him? Being Spielberg as the producer, the first choice was Harrison Ford. I can see that it doesn't work as well uh, as Hoskins. Yeah. Yeah. This the second choice. I'm really glad he was not interested. Uh, Chevy Chase, no. <laughs> Chevy Chase. They, I don't that was know, their man. Second I don't choice. know. I don't know. I I don't want it to replace this one, but now I want to see that one in addition to this one. Well, I want to see the next one more, which is uh Bill Murray, but he notoriously has the one nine hundred number you have to call, and he didn't get the message because <laughs> he, he later he was like, I would have been interested, but I just didn't get that message. So uh, interesting. Uh, and then Eddie Murphy reportedly turned down the role as he misunderstood the to- the concept of tunes and humans coexisting. He later regretted this decision. Um, How did he misinterpret that? I don't know. He's too much of a cartoon to be Eddie Valiant, though, I think. 
But yeah. Eddie Murphy's yeah. attached like every movie in the eighties, right? Like he was gonna be like the Jillian character in Star Trek Four, you know? It's yeah, I don't like every... I don't think he ever could have been um Valiant in this because Valiant's entire thing is that he doesn't laugh. That's his whole character arc, is that he goes from not laughing to I don't know. I guess at the end, his performance breaks down a little bit, in my opinion, but whatever. <laughs> you're and, so far into it. The the fallacy of sunken costs, like you're already in. And we have some some Goldilocks stuff with um, Christopher Lee as as Judge Doom. Um, Tim, okay. Curry, au- Tim Curry auditioned for the role, but was rejected because the producers found Tim Curry too terrifying, which makes sense. It's like, you, you know, that or Bowie, right? Then John Cleese also expressed interest in the role, but was deemed not scary enough. So I guess Christopher okay, Lloyd's interesting. right right in that space, which I think is because Judge Doom was a terrifying, little terrifying. But, yeah. Because oh, yeah. I, I saw this, I guess, what, like two or three years before or younger than you did. We saw it at the same time. But I do distinctly remember at the very end when he turns into a tune that that was frightening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was pretty terrified as a nine-year-old, and you know, um, he just sells it so wonderfully. So uh, it is kind of interesting now watching it, and I've got like a like a nice big. Uh, I don't have a four K screen, but I've got like a fourteen forty p or whatever, like a two K screen, and there are some of the scenes where you can see like the prosthetics, where the the skin tone and the skin texture just completely overlap. And obviously, when I was a kid, I didn't. I don't see any of that stuff because I was being terrified. But also because you're watching it on a CRT or you're watching it in a movie theater, and this is one that I hadn't ever seen in high definition on like a really good screen. But even seeing all of the the little like flaws and stuff, it didn't make any of it seem cheesy, to be honest. No, uh, production wise, I could definitely see the seam showing. I was watching, I think, the 2002 DVD or whatever. And uh, you and, and I think they've had a more restored version since then. Maybe it looks better, mm. but um, you could see the seams didn't distract too much from the movie. And at the same time, when you can see the seams in an older films, sometimes it's like charming because it's like handmade, you know. So it's practical like effects, okay. man. Practical effects hold up so damn well. Um, there was some looking looking into uh doing this one with more CGI stuff because uh, we've already mentioned young Sherlock Holmes had some, you know, Black Cauldron had some CGI. Uh, that was considered just, like, way too expensive at, in 1987-88 to do it that way. So they did revert to basically doing this uh, practically. I mean, they were, like, building robot arms to hold up the, you know, uh, hold up different props and stuff. That's pretty yeah, I cool. Yeah, I saw some of those. And, yeah, they would have, like, a little arm just moving around to, like, hand you something, like a glass. And then they would just draw on top of that, like a traditional animator would, frame by frame. So even if I can see the seams, it's still um, it's still kind of cool. Like uh, before we move on to the real deep stuff, I just want to do two follow ups for this. If people want to do some extracurricular watching of some truly bizarre stuff, if you do like Judge Doom, uh, I would say look up a super cut of this. The show's not very good, but uh, 10 years later, he did a show for UPN called Deadly Games. Uh, it aired after Voyager, so it had a surprising number of uh, Star Trek people guest starring on it. But uh, Christopher Lloyd played a like a uh, a video game villain brought into the real world called Sebastian Jackal. Just be- the name is the best villain name. He's basically playing like a slightly toned down Judge Doom. Toned down as in you can watch him for extended scenes because if you just had to watch Judge Doom for 
scene upon scene that's going to get wearing so it's like a, it's yeah, yeah toned down like in a good way so i would say you know just look up a super cut of sebastian jackal scene sometimes because it's christopher lloyd I've just never like heard of that before hamming it at his best <laughs> um the other one so charles fleischer i don't know quite what his deal is I, maybe he was annoying i mean he annoyed bob hoskins on set in his roger rabbit costume apparently um because he didn't do a whole lot after this but one thing he did do is the 50th anniversary Disneyland special, which I think is um, introduced by Ronald Reagan or something. I might be conflating with another Disneyland special, but there's one with, with, uh, with the Ronald Reagan introduction and um, starts in the Cheers bar, which is weird. It's got all these like different properties as part of it. But Charles Fleischer plays basically every employee at Disneyland in the special, and it's it's pretty amusing. <laughs> It's like a, like a uh, corporate comedy. Yeah, and it's in a weird place because Cheers is NBC. So two years later, no way. That would not happen. You, But it was just in the, like Roger Rabbit. It was in this like little weird space of time. So you got the Cheers gang, you got the Muppets, and you got uh, Charles Fleischer's every employee of Disneyland. So, uh, and, and, then, and this is almost transitioning into the occult aspects of it, but another ex- reason, I think, why Roger Rabbit maybe isn't around as much today as he was is because I think he was always designed practically and maybe symbolically to come together of all these different components of all these different mainstream characters and then, you know, kind of like amplify them a little bit, reinvigorate them. And then it seems like he just kind of like dispersed again, but it's not like he disappeared. He just kind of like went back and gave everyone their, their items back. So like his hands came from Mickey and his shoes came from like goofy or I don't know what the exact characters were, but there's like a whole breakdown of where every different component, um, his cheeks come from Bugs Bunny. Um, like, so basically the cheeks, the silhouette of his head, that his whole entire profile came directly from Bugs Bunny. So like all these little components come together and turn into roger rabbit and then he's the star of this whole movie with these main characters being background right like dicky um or mickey and um daffy and donald and goofy and all of them they're barely even like a assisting cast right like they're basically background characters that have maybe one or two lines just to say they did and to hear those voices but roger rabbit he is the main cartoon character throughout the entire movie so I don't know. I, I've I feel like the reason why he doesn't exist as much is because he never really existed on his own right. Like he was just an amalgamation of all those other characters. It's almost like maybe some of the big characters are against him in a way. Because uh, well, this is this is Eddie, but uh, Bugs and Mickey, you know, like basically try to murder Eddie Valiant themselves by giving him an anvil or whatever it is <laughs> um tweety bird uh same sort of thing tweet i mean tweety all, of course is always relatively violent towards sylvester but otherwise tweety bird's supposed to be cute and tweety bird's not supposed to murder you with a nursery rhyme <laughs> yeah i mean i i think this is where another part of the, i guess we're getting into the occult stuff now because the only way to explain this is how this movie represents a reality where two different dimensions actually can interact with each other. And it's like a two way street where you're not just seeing apparitions and it's not just certain people. Like everybody somehow can see interact with like a two dimensional character. And then the two dimensional characters can interact with three dimensional characters. 
Um, but I think that there's actually an alchemical reference to this, and it's called uh, Mundus Imaginalis, I think, which means the imaginary world. But it makes this argument that if you believe in it kind of hard enough, almost like the concept of Maya, which is the shared illusion, that if you believe in it hard enough and enough people believe in it hard enough, that some of these like imaginary realities can be interacted with and maybe can come into some kind of a being i don't know if i believe all in 100 in like the woo-woo aspect of that but this isn't something that that came out in like the 1940s or 60s or 80s like we're talking about 1400s and earlier when people were discussing this kind of a concept and this roger rabbit brings it as close as you probably can to illustrating it in a very seamless way where you've got two different realities and just like you were saying they're they're trying to kill valiant it's not exactly that they're trying to kill him because roger rabbit explains a little bit into the movie that he was like um he gets handcuffed to him and i'm and we can start at the beginning of the movie but there's a specific scene where they get handcuffed and he's trying to saw the handcuffs off and he's like can you stop moving and he slips you know roger rabbit slips his entire hand out of the handcuff and he was like are you telling me that you could have taken your hand out of that handcuff at any time but Roger Rabbit says, not at any time, only when it's funny. And I feel like it was a, it might be a throwaway line and people might chuckle at it. But if you go back and you imagine that it's two different realities, it's our reality that we're in right now that has its own set of rules. And then this cartoon reality. And one of the rules of that reality is that events can only happen if they're funny and if like comedy is involved. So going back to your saying like oh they're trying to kill him i don't think they're trying to kill him because they knew or somehow in their reality like it was a funny thing so it had to happen like they are compelled by doing funny things regardless of the outcome but because that's part of the rules of that reality another part of their reality is that it doesn't necessarily mean that a bad thing happens even though the humor is about something bad maybe happening just like people only ride roller coasters because it makes you feel like you're not going to survive it. If you got into a roller coaster and you weren't even concerned for a second, even in your reptilian brain, like, oh, I might die from this, then they wouldn't be thrilling. So I, I don't know. I, I think that they correlate in some way. I've managed to do that on a roller coaster. <laughs> What's it to so just be completely apathetic? Yeah, but your stomach still turns a little bit. So like you said, there's a little bit going on. But no, I've intentionally gotten on just to be like, I'm going to try and zen out this roller coaster and, you know, see how it goes, right? So, I mean... It's kind but of like, you still get a, you have to get a little bit of an adrenaline rush. That's on that's why I brought like in the ups and downs. Yeah, right? that's why I brought in the stomach drop and stuff, right? Yeah. But you could still kind of mentally, like kind of like how um you can turn off your shiver if uh if you're cold, like you can kind of do that mentally, and you can um not be ticklish if you want to be not ticklish. So uh, I don't believe that one. Oh, I used to be very ticklish, and I I cannot be tickled now. So. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, it's the same of like uh, overcoming like, the gag reflex, like the sword swallowers and stuff. Yeah, like it's, you're kind of agreeing like, with yourself, you know, to turn it off, right? So yeah, like <laughs> I'm okay. We can die doing to turn this. It on. Don't worry, I got this. <laughs> so Judge Doom does murder Eddie's brother Teddy. Uh, is it his intention? Like he wasn't trying to be funny. He was trying to murder. Like he's different than the other tunes in some way. I mean, clearly he is different well, than yeah. the other tunes in some way. I don't know. It's a good. That's actually a better philosophical question. Um, but I, I feel like he was the catalyst. He kind of represented. Here's where the rules between these two worlds don't interact well. 
Um, you know what I mean? Like he he was the anomaly. Just like there's always going to be some weird mutation or anomaly of, at some point. So he represented that aspect of it. So he's Neo breaking out of the Toontown Matrix. He, yeah, dude, he's like the rift. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, what if the Toons really are evil and they really are bad, <laughs> and they just have this really great facade? Technically, Doom is the good guy in this, isn't yeah. he? Uh, it's hard to call Doom a good guy, but you did make me think of the um south park imagination land or the uh was it the woodland critters uh so that that's kind of, south <laughs> park kind of yeah, took that Easter special yeah so south park sort of took that idea and ran with it a bit i think um the other thing i, I was definitely thinking about like that other world here it's toontown you drive through a tunnel or you break down a wall which is i guess a bit of a, a metaphor at the end um <laughs> but um you know dream time that's that's kind of our own toontown isn't it like where the rules don't make sense where things you know there's maybe fear of death but i assume things in your dream aren't trying to murder you unless you happen to live on elm street so um there's a lot of people that i that i talk to that do have dreams about you know basically always people coming coming to like try and kill them or attack them or chase them down or something like uh actually last sunday night um i i watched the twilight zone and then i was going to go to bed and i needed to wake up a little early to do an episode for that podcast so i was like okay i'll see the episode and then i'll just not knock out till um 6 45 a.m i'll get up and i'll just get straight to talking about it and then had like so much ridiculous dream content in between it was like i'd gone on five trips so uh those I, are great man i mean on on like the lucid dreaming aspect uh, I I used to not be able to remember my dreams at all, maybe a year or two ago, but I had a meeting with lucidcenter.org, I think. Shout out mm -hmm. lucidcenter.org. I hope that's your real website. <laughs> uh, but I had like a, like a free session with one of them and prepped for one of these podcasts where I was going to interview them. And they gave me some incredible advice that completely changed my ability um, to be better than what it was like I'm not an expert or anything but someone that's like I mean if you already have decent dreams and you can memorize them these are awesome tips to get it even further so one of them is a reality check and one of the better ones I've heard about is some people will wear a like a rubber band around their wrist or some kind of like a rubber bracelet and have an alarm on their phone and they'll set the alarm if you want to go hardcore it's like every 15 minutes you can mm -hmm. do it every hour every four hours but the point is that every time your alarm goes off, you just train yourself to snap that that bracelet. And if you do it to the point where you hear the alarm going off in your pocket and you just snap the bracelet like like unconsciously almost because you've been doing it so long, the idea is that if you're ever in a dream, the alarm will go off and you'll you'll snap the bracelet, but you won't feel the bracelet snapping your wrist. And it's like a trigger to let you know, hey, you're in dream time right now without you necessarily waking up. That was one of the biggest tips, although it wasn't described to me that way. He described to me reality checks for like when you grab for items, door handles or like glasses, imagine your hand going through it. But the the wrist snap thing is something someone else told me recently that I love. And the other big one was the second you wake up, if you can remember your dream at all, before you get up or roll over, like if you had to go to the bathroom, before you do anything, like lay back down and close your eyes and just go through an inventory of like, what emotions were I just feeling? Was I happy? Was I sad? Was I scared? Like go through all of those. And if you feel like maybe, yeah, I felt happier. Maybe I felt scared. 
then you start thinking like did i see certain people was i in a house was i in a boat like was it hot was it light and you start trying to do like a checklist and the more of those that you can figure out and put that dream together it actually makes it easier to do it over time to the point where that this is the one thing was a breakthrough for me some people can do it automatically for me it was like uh you know i never thought i'd be able to do it but wake up from one dream get up you know go get like a glass of water or whatever go back to sleep and then like go right back into the dream that you left but having like control like like actively wanting to do that and doing it just by remembering where it was at and then right as you go back to sleep just like put all those things back into place and i don't know it's 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 weird being able to feel like you have have some kind of control over your subconscious thoughts and your dreams it's like a really weird feeling yeah, I, I have that. Actually, that was part of the Sunday morning dream or Monday morning dream sequences, um, you know, where you have an uncomfortable dream or a nightmare and you wake up. That doesn't feel good. And yeah, you kind of go back and finish it with a little bit. Yeah, more yeah, control. yeah. Like, I need to I need to see this through. <laughs> um, just to amend a few things you said uh, where you're talking about kind of like lie back and assess your emotions. If you really do have to take a piss or something and you can't do that. Uh, something else is just write down like two keywords and those two keywords will help you remember a whole lot more. So um, like what I remember, what basic, keywords, like what would the keywords be? Um, well, I didn't do this for the one I just told you about, um, but I, 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 rem I would have written down um, brutalist landscapes because the dream involved like going and there was a lot of events happening, which I didn't remember. But if I had put written down a few words and looked at a few hours later, a lot more of those details would have come to me. Um, right. yeah, maybe just, just when you're writing down the word you remember. So you're associating that way. So uh, you could probably do both. You can do that and assess if you don't, you know, need to take a piss or something. But uh, actually this morning, I, I do well, hopefully remember. Hopefully we'll just all get chipped and you won't have to remember anything. It'll just be recorded. You'll have like the DVR going on. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> no, uh, even this morning, I, I, I checked uh, an email response from you. And then I was like, that wasn't the real iPad. <laughs> so... I woke up. I was like, "Oh, because I like literally like read... a dream response." <laughs> yeah, it was a dream response, and uh, I mean, yeah. So because you didn't respond, which is fine, because you know we're here and doing this. But I, I did get up and check my dream iPad and got a dream response. Sometimes, uh, see, that's my problem. <laughs> Most of my astral travel these days is like checking the dream phone or something, which is, I guess, why you shouldn't have the devices near you when you're sleeping. But <laughs> that was a real. That was a board game, wasn't it? Dream phone. Oh yeah, should be. Is is that where you get a a, a blind date or something in high school? <laughs> I think so. Oh yeah, you go to the, <laughs> you like go to the mall. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of guessing there, but um. And and uh, on that that same note too about the lucid dreaming, uh, that's another really good practice. Is if you think you're in a lucid dream, or you can train yourself to do this while you're awake, to like look at something, a billboard or a street sign or anything that has text. Look at it, read it, look down, and then look back up at it again and just read it again. So just read everything twice. Because very rarely in a dream will you be able to read text and look away and then look back at it and the text be the same, which is just another one of these like weird like cheat codes. It's like a like a matrix glitch that you can look out for. I'm in general, I'm kind of I've kind of come down more of the side of having very vivid dreams. Uh, I like actually letting my subconscious drive the dream and then just remembering in a very good detail. Uh, I have done a few lucid dreams and I found the most exciting thing for me about the lucid dream is just the um, entering them. I, I've done the, have you you've heard of the wild method? Um, Wake and initiated lucid dream. Yeah. yeah, I've managed that several times. Um, 
you know, I wake. I usually like wake up at like four or five in the morning, and then kind I, got, of go I gotta to... do my shout out for for uh, my time samplers comic series. This is the first comic that I came out with, and the entire premise is that they actually have something called a wild machine. And it's like a big joke, like they hate the name of it, but it's a, a real name because it <laughs> stands for wake initiated lucid dream. And it basically means like you don't have to wait to go into REM sleep and um, which takes, I don't know, it's like three hours or something. Awake initiated lucid dream. You could technically just snap right into it. Uh, for me, I did have, like I said, I had to wake up at four or five in the morning. So my brain's probably halfway wired there anyway. And mm -hmm. Uh, I actually found out that this is a Tibetan position after I'd done it a few times, which is basically lying on one uh, on your side, like on your hand, one hand and the other hand is just kind of on your hip. And um, but that one's kind of cool. Uh, you start seeing kind of like, go you know, ghostly images and clouds. And eventually one of those like coalesces and whoosh, now you're like somewhere else. So that's really? probably that one of the most bizarre. that's got to be the most psychedelic experience I've ever had uh, without using any substances in that case and then i that had the jump of. i've had the jump method work so uh, what's the jump I, method again that's that's like one of your reality checks where you jump and see if you're floating okay. and i i did just check once oh shit i'm floating so it was a dream i've heard one of those too yeah <laughs> the only one that's ever worked for me so far has uh just been like reaching for handles and then i've never done the snap thing before but there's other ways you can do it some people do like a finger check so they'll like constantly do one of these things with their fingers and sometimes they'll you'll like go to like the the inner pads and when you go to do that in your dream world like you'll still go through the motion but you'll notice that you don't feel anything you're not feeling your fingers like touch each other and if you can train yourself to notice that kind of thing and also but you would kind of look like a weirdo you just always be around in public you'd kind of look like rain man right or like you're you're always plotting against somebody See, I think this is where I became a fan of the vivid dream. I was having a very vivid dream that went, then went lucid. And then the kind of plot of what was happening just kind of went away. And then I was like in like this Oceanside like restaurant. And I was just like checking out like the reflections and handles, like you were saying, like in the lucid dream. Like I was just like checking out what things looked like because I knew it was a dream. I was like, I don't know. I think I prefer, I was like, I was having this really interesting story going on. And, and now I'm staring at reflections, which is very cool again. But, you know, it's just like, <laughs> um, and 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 to to bring him back to the movie a little bit but also through this little segue of lucid dreaming it does seem that this movie if you had to understand it and watch it as like a serious movie it kind of takes place in this lucid dream world and that's one of the reasons why i guess doom is trying to get rid of cartoons in some regard and it's also why there's human beings that are okay with tunes going away forever and a lot that don't like tunes and they're the ones that just don't want to have these weird possibilities and like this lucid dreaming stuff to even be a possibility. Like who even cares about it? That has nothing to do with this mundane world. Um, and you can kind of see that where our money doesn't translate over to them. Nothing really translates between our world and their world, except for maybe sex, <laughs> which is a weird one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we can. The, the rule, like I said, well, the more you think about the rules, the more it's like, you know what? Oh, by the way, my segue was just going to be like driving through the tunnel and then the cartoon world opening up in front of you is a, it was a little bit like my uh, I just thought about the wild method entry from that a little bit. Also, yeah, just the idea of going down a long, dark tunnel could have, you know, many, many connotations. <laughs>
Zemeckis and Spielberg love that tunnel, though. Isn't that the same one that's in uh, Back to the Future movies and probably in like 80 there, other things? There's a few <laughs> other uh, nods to that, too. Makes sense. I, I, did he, I don't think he made a film between... Maybe, did he make Jewel and Nile? I don't remember. Anyway, I think this was his follow-up. Yeah, this was his follow-up to Back to the Future, I believe. So makes sense that there'd be some callbacks and things. Probably, I guess, just thinking about parts two and three at the time. Um, first thing, well, let, let, before we get into sex, why don't we talk about food? That's kind of weird. I get food. Yeah, because some of the tunes are eating. Roger Rabbit, you know, gets drunk and explodes, right? So, um, and Although, one of, I wouldn't say that's food. That doesn't count as food. Oh, so well, it's it's okay. Yeah, it's something you would ingest. Although, to be fair, when he when he slams the whiskey or the drink at the bar, you do see all of it goes straight through him because you know on set they just threw a glass of some kind of liquid, so <laughs> he didn't get much of it. But yeah, I was like, well, do do cartoons also poop i mean tweety probably does because it's funny right <laughs> of course that's that's what you're concerned of you're just like who's only pooping? if it's funny How's though yeah work? <laughs> yeah yeah but it's only if it's funny right like they maybe that's, they can't that's true can they only eat when it's funny is that i mean i'm like how hard and fast is this rule <laughs> jessica rabbit's like slightly funny but i mean she's got different goals i guess <laughs> yeah i guess that's a good uh idea but but that was Roger Rabbit describing the rule that uh, applied to him in his reality. I don't know if that means that it would have to apply cartoon wide. So I don't know if Jessica Rabbit would have to do anything because she also has that line that uh, I'm not bad. I was only drawn that way, which you can almost see like the, the Walmart shirts uh, with like the overweight, you know, Walmart people wearing it. It's like, I'm not bad. I was just drawn that way. <laughs> but I think that that describes her rules within that reality too. Where it's like maybe she doesn't want to be this vixen, but they were like she was specifically drawn to to fill that exact role, and there's no real decision about it. So, and and this also I think ties into a really interesting dichotomy. And like when you juxtapose the cartoon reality with our reality, it's also taking place in Hollywood, and it's around all of these actors and directors and people that are lying and have all these ulterior motives. But in the cartoon world, it doesn't seem like there is a Hollywood or anything. Like you're just a cartoon and you just are who you are. And that just happens to be entertaining for some people to want to put you into movies and be in Hollywood. But it's this completely different reality because the cartoons feel like they're always being their pure selves. Whereas it's the humans that are constantly trying to cover up their true intentions or act differently than how they actually feel, which is almost every single human in this, in this entire movie that you see. Yeah, like um, Judge Doom's shave and a haircut like is 100% going to work, and it does, which is Right, that's stupid. a rule. It's funny. It's, you know, that's why. It's the well, worst and, decision and possible, but it's funny. That, that's one of the, the best examples that I could think of is the shave and a haircut to bits, because that one is where I think, like, I would I would love to laser focus and figure out the exact rules of this world, because... Did that happen because it was funny and that's why Roger had to bust through the wall and, you know, finish the shaving the haircut to bits joke or is shaving a haircut to bits like this, this other more superior role that applies to all cartoon members and someone would have had to do it outside of that. And especially since it's judge doing it, maybe it's only when a cartoon starts it, another cartoon has to finish it. Like I've, 
that's where all my my unanswered questions went. It wasn't about poop as much, but <laughs> uh, now what he was wrong about was when he looks at the record and was like, "Drunks wouldn't listen to these loony tracks." Because I've I've had multiple occasions where I'm drinking with people and then proceed to play them the worst of the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Beach Boys, but for some reason I'll I'll have a few drinks and then just start playing people their shittiest tracks because it's fun. <laughs> because why not? Yeah, let's just let's just put it on some of the worst. Uh, just just if anyone want, know, wants to know what I'm looking about. And let, hey, I'm not even going to go with Mike Love on this one. Go look up Brian Wilson, Smart Girls, and see if you get through it. <laughs> Is that one of the songs? It's um, when he was under the still under the control of Dr. Eugene Landy, and they made him write a rap song. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so it's a, a mentally disturbed man trying to rap in the late 80s, which is, uh, woo! Not, so... You know, I know Mike Love is like the villain of the Beach Boys, but Brian Wilson is responsible for the worst thing that ever came out of any of those guys. <laughs> kind I of wish I didn't know about that, but yeah, I'm going to have to look that up now. <laughs> well, do you chase it down with pet sounds or something? No, we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, see, what else? Um, Charles Fleischer is voicing several people here. He does Psycho. I guess that is one of you know, he does. Benny the Cab is also, you know, Roger Rabbit and Benny the Cab are the same voice. Again, Mel Blanc is half the voices we hear. Um, the Disney gang is being voiced by the, the 80s iterations of the people that voiced them. So those are all different. But just getting meta-wise, I also wanted to consider the fact that a lot of these people, these tunes, do have technically the same voice. I don't know if that is... It. I mean, that could just be production realities. But I, I was just thinking that's interesting that certain people might kind of have you know, like, I don't know, you get a, like soul families or something like the Looney Tunes crew is like a, a tune soul family or something. <laughs> the, the the voice impersonations, too, is a fascinating topic for me, because especially with like AI coming out now, there's all these discussions about whether or not you could trademark your voice. And like, for example, Morgan Freeman, like at this point, if you make a model of Morgan Freeman's voice and you make him say whatever you want. Is there any re repercussion for that? Anything to prevent you from doing that? And if there is, what does that mean for people that could just impersonate? Like we were talking earlier, people that are really good at doing voice impersonations. So what if you just know someone that does like a killer Christopher Walken or, you know, a Leonard Nimoy or whatever, whatever the kids are doing these days. But if you can do one of those voices perfectly, are you just like not allowed to do that because it sounds too close? Because then if, AI version of someone's voice can get banned. Couldn't you just train a model on a voice impersonator and then have the same voice? And I don't know. It's such a fascinating concept to me, but it's also because I think in the future, especially cartoons and CG animated stuff, they're not going to need an actual voice actor to sit in a studio and do a lot of this stuff. Some of the intonations maybe, but I feel like in the next year or two, they'll have AI voice things where they just have, you know, someone go into a studio and, have a whole bunch of different dialogue and they throw out this scene and then they'll never have to come in again. Well, I want to throw out a few non-AI modern analogs to that, other ways to do it. Uh, one will be the 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 Trek Star Wars dork comparison. Well, not really, because I'm talking about technical stuff. But um, What is about... this? The what comparison? Okay, okay. first let me uh, the Star Wars, Star Trek dork comparison. But first I want to go about 10 years back. Uh, 
Roger Ebert's last years of his life. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, in the last years of Roger Ebert's life, he could not speak anymore, right? And at some point, um, someone took all of those uh, at the movies and, you know, ran, I guess that maybe they did use AI, I'm not sure, but basically compiled where he could talk Stephen Hawking style. But it actually was his voice. They had reconstituted his voice from all these elements. Right. So, so yeah, kind of like Mellotron. I don't know if you don't know what a Mellotron is. Oh yeah, I know what a Mellotron do. is. <laughs> so that, yeah, I think that's there was like a more digital version of that. It wasn't quite AI, but it was, you know, it was uh, an amalgamation. It was like a, a version of his voice made from different samples and then reconstituted to sound like his voice. I'm sure I've never heard it before. Does it sound? good or did it sound like nightmare feel like it sounds like just being described oh um i can't answer that part so i don't i mean it's, he wasn't doing episodes about the movies like this this was simply for him to communicate and feel like slightly less like screwed up i guess right so yeah you know yeah, even if even like wrapped in your head yeah it's kind of nice to be able to i mean his writing was fine i think he was writing movie reviews up till he died so you know his, his brain was still there but so, yeah it's kind of oh that sounds like me that's cool because i can't do that anymore uh, the Trek Star Wars thing would be episodes last year, Obi-Wan Kenobi series. I think this one I'm not 100% sure about, but I believe they did something similar with James Earl Jones where he's like consenting. He's giving them elements, but I don't think he was actually like performing as Darth Vader for that. I think they were using mm -hmm. some computer stuff to use his actual voice and not quite full on AI, it, but along those lines and uh, again a few years earlier they had put peter cushing's uh face on you know years after he died so that now being notorious for kind of being the first time we they really brought in a dead person to have a role in a movie right <laughs> well we were we were also talking earlier about all the different people that might have played valiant right all the different you know um bill murray might have been one of them and uh and all the different people that might have been doom yeah, And I think that that's probably what's going to make all this stuff a moot point because it's not going to be, oh, did James Earl Jones let you license his likeness and all stuff? It's just going to be like, hey, the the James Earl Jones variant of Star Wars is the one that's doing the best right now. And you can put any actor you want in the different roles and it's going to be like the ones that people want the most end up going that way. I, I don't know. I, f I feel like that's the direction that it's going to be kind of headed. Like you can get to customize all those different aspects of it. Now, the other one. Now, this is the one I like because I like analog and I like chop and tape and stuff like that. Uh, there was a Star Trek Prodigy episode last year where the the captain of, of their show goes into the holodeck to try and get training because he's not really a captain. And uh, they bring back legacy Star Trek characters um, all of them are actors who have passed on, except for they had Dr. Crusher just so they could have like someone doing some proper interactive <laughs> dialogue. But they had, you know, Scotty and Ahura and, um, and Spock were there. Um, and, and Odo, uh, Rene Aboujanois apparently didn't have enough good content, so he doesn't talk in this episode, but he's there. Um, but the others, they just had interns go back through like all the old Star Trek episodes and just clip lines. So it was complete sentences. So you have Leonard, uh, you have Spock making speeches in Leonard Nimoy's voice, but the audio quality keeps changing. Like one is clearly from the 60s and then you'll hear like a kind of a very old Nimoy speaking the next line. So it's clunky, so but in a way I like, like the it. South Park one where um, uh, Isaac Hayes dropped out because they were getting 
a little bit too jokey about Scientology and they just started putting his lines together the same way. They just went back through all of the other dialogue that he'd ever said and they could basically make any word they wanted after that. Yeah, in this case, it was kind of like a, a you know legacy, like, oh, let's uh, memorialize these people because they didn't they didn't just change up the sentences. It was like full lines of dialogue taken directly mm, okay. out of old stuff and stitched together that way, not words. So that's a, that makes it a little rougher sounding that that makes a comedic sounding. Right. And then uh, just recently, they, they you know, had, had Majel Rod, uh, Roddenberry doing the computer voice. Uh, I, I think, again, that was clips from. But yeah, but again, you're enlisting these uh dead actors to take on roles that they never signed on and then ai you're like manipulating that even further which i guess is part of the issue so well and now you can like mold voices too right you could be like i want to take the ai frank sinatra and the ai pat butram and combine those and get like a sinatra butram sort of sound going there's something interesting because okay they got mel blank to do his last thing so it's like authentic looney tune voices as authentic disney voices as you're going to get in 1988 with the companies backing it because um you know whoever was the person doing it at the time which i could look up their names but i didn't but uh the singing sword is archival uh recordings of frank sinatra who was still living at the time they made this movie so <laughs> that, that's you're gonna be in this weird. movie whether you want to or not yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's just like we're using an old public, I guess it was probably a public domain recording because they were using maybe one of his first things, right? So uh, like, hey, it's public domain, we can use it. I mean, maybe he loved it. I don't know what he thought. Or may maybe he put a contract out on some some. I, that sounds people. closer to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I want my cut. No, I remember when Frank Sinatra died. Uh, actually, it's, it's Mark who's on some of my other podcasts and him and I were like, gee, I wonder how many contracts just went out. <laughs> When Frank Sinatra died, he's like, huh, I'm these people are coming down with me, you know? <laughs> Vegas, just all of a sudden, people start moving out. Yeah, yeah, There's uh, you lose half of Vegas uh, overnight. Yeah, one half of Vegas shoots the other half. Maybe that's how it works. <laughs> um, we've been kind of like serendipitously falling into different occult corners, but I imagine you have a few that you noted. Yeah, I've got a, a few really good specific ones, I think. So okay. one of them that I mentioned was just the two different dimensions that are kind of intersecting. I think that's probably the, the coolest aspect of this movie because they do it so well. And just like those rules, that's my again, my favorite one is the shaving a haircut to bits. And it just makes me think, like, what's the actual rule behind that? Because it does seem compulsory in some way. And is it? like a universal rule for that entire universe is it just for roger is it just between cartoons and that is one of the examples of why i think there's so many cool little threads you can follow throughout this movie because there's so many of those little rules that are sort of uh you know placed in here um another one that it, it reminds me of that this might be because i don't know if you've heard of second life before and some of the other like online cross realities have you heard of I second did... life in particular because of the uh, hot tub time machine joke at the beginning where he's like, you've, you've been working out in prison in Second Life for like a month now. He's like, you do the crime, you pay the time. You know, something like that. Um, uh, the, you know, there, there's some not good jokes that way too. But that one I thought was pretty, pretty funny. And there's been there's been a lot of memes that have been, you know, either like made into Second Life and then Second Life turns it into an even bigger meme. And it's, it's this whole sort of interesting feedback cycle. But there's also an interesting aspect of Second Life 
that people can make their custom avatars and upload them. And that's where you might walk into a world and it's like you've got a very serious looking Godzilla with, you know, textures and details and uh, maybe like a little bit of sheen to them. And then you'll have like a little tiny, you know, like hentai midget fuzzy or, you know, furry character. And then you'll have like some weird anime baby with huge eyes and they're all interacting in the same world maybe like arguing over real estate or something like mundane because again like within the shared spaces there's this one agreed upon reality but then when they go into their own little bubbles um and they surround themselves with just other characters within their little genres like they really are transporting themselves to a completely different mental space right it's almost like you were describing uh kind of like you know zoning out and doing your lucid dreaming awake initiated lucid dream it would be very hard to convince me that awake initiated lucid dream can't be the same as someone sitting in front of you know world of warcraft and zoning out for six or seven hours and just like not even knowing that they have a body anymore right like an actual body in this world they're out like fighting monsters or whatever and like slaying dragons so i think there's a very real aspect of that I mean, that's one of the main things about seeing a movie in a movie theater. It's like that that's the temple you that happens to you in a movie theater, like or a coffin. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I just saw actually that I just went to see the new Mission Impossible where the um the the main henchman we'll call him gets into like an electro coffin and puts on like an electro mask and has like the uh the AI just like give him instructions and information and stuff. So well, that's pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, by the way, have you seen that movie? Uh, that's I very... haven't seen it yet. Okay, no, that, I, that... I, it reminds me of um man. What was the Philip K. Dick animated movie with Keanu Reeves? Oh yes, that had something similar where they had like this mask that they could put on. It would constantly scanner darkly. Around. Yeah, scanner darkly. That's right. There we go. Okay, I have it on DVD somewhere, so I was like, I should be. Which also, I think, had a clip of, like, Alex Jones in it, unless that was Waking <laughs> Life. Oh, that's Waking Life, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, also cool. I, I tend to watch Waking Life more because I like that kind of dream <laughs> logic, which, again, that's what... We're only actually in Toontown for, like, eight minutes in Roger Rabbit, which kind of shocked me. It might me. be my least favorite part of the movie, too. I, I much prefer cartoons in reality than reality inside of a cartoon world. When I was eight years old, that was, I guess, maybe too short for me. Yeah, now the other stuff is more interesting, but um, I, I guess I'm just saying, like, because we watch movies like that, uh, because this movie's getting very meta, it's like, okay, here's this wall we always see, and we're at the end of the movie, they li literally break the wall. Right. So mm -hmm. that's metaphysics that when you were eight and I was nine, we would have also gotten, you know, like an eight, well, nine. And they also have that. the hole. The portable hole was a really uh, good example of explaining to a nine year old this concept of breaking the normal reality that we're used to. Right. Because they got the hole and you can just like put it in a wall and then stick your hand through it. That's what one of the cops does in the beginning. But it's also how Eddie gets away at the end as he uses one of these holes to kind of temporarily transport part of his body out of this reality and then back into it and the way that it's communicated is such a simple concept because it's the little hole that bugs bunny comes out of or it's the one that porky comes out of to like come out at your screen so you understand like oh the portable hole is a portal to another dimension and in that other dimension like you can you know you can basically like take part of your physical being and remove just a part of it and the other part remains here 
because you, you know, obviously you see the arm go in and the arm come back out and no one's like, Oh my God, you know, my arm hurts or like, Oh, what happened to my fingers or whatever. Like, it seems like it's just a normal casual aspect of this reality. So I don't know. I think it's like, it's basically teaching quantum physics to children at that point, but in a very understandable way. I do remember the holes being one of the main mechanics of that uh, PC video game I, I played. Maybe it was like a proto portal. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> great game. I mean, portal's a great game too, for that same reason. Yeah. I, there I'm would be say- an awesome, if someone made like a, a Roger rabbit themed portal sequel. And is the, uh, is the computer Jessica or. I <laughs> know. Uh, I think you're probably trying to like, like sneak a peek on Jessica. That's the game. It's like a leisure suit. Larry, where is Roger rabbit? Yeah. Except that we have to get back to his Roger Rabbit horny. I mean, he wants to play patty cake, right? Right. And <laughs> so, okay. So I want to just like dive headfirst into this one because for whatever reason, there was, there was so many scenes when they imply that everyone wants to bang Jessica Rabbit, including Valiant, even though that he's like working for Roger Rabbit, her name's literally Jessica Rabbit. Like they're together and Jessica claims to, you know, be in love with this rabbit. And everyone's like, how, you know, how could this be? But it's also because it's a bunch of people in the real world trying to figure out how a relationship works between two cartoon characters. Where again, as she's like, I'm I'm drawn this way. So she doesn't have a choice over how she looks. So it's not like she's dressing up a certain way to attract a certain type of person. Like she was created that way by someone outside of her power. But the other weird aspect of this is all of these adult real men that want to you know maybe i think what would um uh eddie's girlfriend says like dabbing dabbing into the watercolor or something i'm trying to remember what the exact phrase was yeah uh, oh, yeah da- dabbing in watercolor She's, oh yeah dabbing in watercolors eddie so like so apparently this is a known thing that already happens between adults and cartoons in this reality for there to be a bunch of different slang terms for it being, you know, dabbing, dabbing your stick in the watercolor or whatever. But, but uh, it made me think and go on this tangent. Are men attracted to cartoons more than women are attracted to cartoons? Is this like a, uh, like a, like a weird gender thing? Um, and it's not, it actually isn't just men as, as much as some people be like, yeah, it's a man thing because they're so visual or whatever, but there, a, a guy won the Nobel prize, I think in the 1970s for this concept called supernormal stimuli or a supernormal stimulus. And, and I've got a couple like real brief notes on this and also goes into some Japanese theory. So I, you might I be able to give a... me some. I was about so, to give you some. <laughs> okay, so no, we've got we've got some. So a supernormal stimulus is an artificial object that triggers an animal's instinctual response more intensely than the natural analog. So it's something that has been artificially created that makes you respond even more than you would if you saw like the real version of the thing that you're being shown, which might not sound groundbreaking. Uh, because that's how I guess most things work. But the more you look into it, it's very formulaic. And here's like this global mind control aspect where maybe there's something to this. But the the Nobel Prize winner, he basically says that supernormal stimuli not only explain this heightened response, um, but it, it it explains the the hentai aspect, which kind of gets into this Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit 
Um, but it also talks about all artwork, talks about junk food, talks about social media consumption, how people on like Instagram are posting, you know, living their best life. And it's, you know, they rented out a house just to take the picture to be in the house and stuff. But those are super normal stimuli. And by seeing that, it gives you a much bigger endorphin rush and like a dopamine, you know, drop than than other sort of activities would. And you don't actually have to go and do these things like you actually can sort of vicariously get the dopamine boost um, by, you know, like enjoying someone else's imagery. And where this gets more interesting to me is that they can re reproduce this. Again, that definition is triggers an animal's response, not just a human. You don't have to have higher order of thinking. So there's one example where they took these fake eggs that were way bigger than a normal bird's egg would be, way more saturated, and they covered it in these black polka dots. Like it looked like a cartoon egg, literally. And they were able to place these eggs next to the nests of songbirds and the songbirds would abandon their own eggs and let their own eggs die. And they kept trying to sit on these bigger comical, you know, bright blue, black polka dotted eggs. And they would keep like, they would make them so they would be so awkward to sit on that the bird couldn't actually just like sit there and it would have to keep falling off and roll over. And they would just constantly do that and let their eggs perish. And there was another example of butterflies where um, this gray-backed butterfly, if they just found two pieces of cardboard and they knew how to flutter it in just the right, like seductive way, as the report studied um, claimed, that that would also make it so all of the male butterflies would ignore the real female butterflies and they'd all try to mate with these pieces of cardboard just because the fluttering was like more seductive than the female, you know, butterfly fluttering. But these are all examples of supernormal stimulus, which is what Jessica Rabbit like actually represents in this movie is this supernormal stimulus. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the first thought, and I, I was going to say hentai Japan for that. But yeah, I mean, you really can get those pillows, that, the, the lap pillows as a not a pillow that goes in your lap, but a pillow shaped like a woman's uh no, how many no do you have reason. to get until they start giving you volume discounts? Do you know? Uh, Naki Harbor. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it, how it runs in Naki Harbor. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the sort of thing. You know, idol culture is just again, idol is a name. Uh, idol culture for J pop and especially K pop is pretty much off the charts. Um, you know, like we, we have these hyper normal people as, as the idols, right? And, uh, right. And like the, larger than life, the companies they're working for, you know, exploiting them, uh, basically is, you know, like these people can't seem human. Like a, a lot of the J-pop girl groups, like they're not even supposed to like date or anything while they're part of the group. So <laughs> it's like, you know, you have to be, they, they got to keep ideal. their, their essence. You know what I mean? Can't be leaking out. <laughs> right. So, so we get controversies like, Oh, this, this J-pop idol did, just, just got engaged suddenly and everyone's pissed or, um, what what else do we got? Yeah, someone kind of Britney didn't just got a really close close cropped haircut, and that was like an issue. So um, the most fun is uh, was the the boy band SMAP. This is uh, about fifteen years ago, and one of the members of SMAP, very wholesome looking. Uh, what were you saying? SMAP. 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 S M A P. SMAP. SMAP. Okay. SMAP. So anyway, one it of the sounds uh, like a bad word. Sounds something like your grandma would slap you if you said that. Yeah, yeah, but she'd smap you. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
And and you know it's it's the Japan Inc. thing where I think all these guys still appear as actors even though the group's no longer functioning. But uh, somewhere around 2008, one of them got naked and, and ran through the park, and it just became down like all over Japanese news. And the most absurd news piece I've ever seen was where someone had built a scale model of this park and the buildings surrounding it, physical model in the in the studio, and they're you know going over like, oh, here he did this, here he did this, and you're talking about like a you know, a singer that just ran around naked for a few minutes. And this is a week's worth of news. So here's a reenactment. Yeah, really? Yeah, so, <laughs> but the fact that they had built this model and everything, like this doesn't matter. I mean, I guess the model is what you're talking about in a way. Everyone's focus on the stupid thing so much, you know, it <laughs> uh, does matter because that turns into a meme that now, like now I'm learning about it for the first time. And now that's occupying space in my brain right now you got to think that, about by SMAP the way too yeah. <laughs> yeah um i guess we we can move on from that one if you, i don't know how many of those you you have but uh uh yeah that there was that aspect of the um and again that guy's name was nicholas tinnenbergen if anyone's interested and that was the 1973 nobel prize in physiology and medicine alongside Carl von Frisch and Conrad Lorenz. Um, but anyway, that, that one really does blow my mind because they can repeat it consistently with all types of specific animals. Like if you just find the right cheat code for the right animal, you can trick them into, uh, you know, basically eliminating themselves, which is kind of MK ultra ish. I mean, it feels like that's kind of in that same little uh, area. And and also I I since Japan came up, the fisherman's wife is an example of something that happened. Uh, was that like eighteen hundreds or something? Like at least it was way before Roger Rabbit or any of these other kind of like pinup cartoons. And there was also a concept called a Tijuana Bible, which oh, was yeah. a banned comic book that was kind of popular during like Prohibition times, I think. And it was considered pornography, but it was really just cartoonists that were like to draw boobs and you know wrote about alcohol and drugs and violence and stuff um but that's that's a really cool topic especially in the world of comic books which is near and dear to my heart but yeah tijuana bibles are like the og underground comic scene <laughs> have um, you ever seen a tijuana bible of any kind it's a it's an umbrella term for any comic that was you know like naughty I know I've looked period. at a few like internet, you know, articles just like showing stuff. Have I had an actual Tijuana Bible in my hand? Uh, no. Or you, I, I mean, you can look them up online and find. Like, yeah, I've seen them online. Through them and stuff. Yeah. No, I have in my note in here. I wonder how many Rule Thirty Four results you get for Jessica, more or less than Betty Boop. That that's my the, the chaser question. The first one, obviously. The second one, have you seen Betty Boop's uh, vintage cartoons, like her black and white cartoons? absolutely in yeah. fact man i, I want to just suggest i mean at one point hopefully we run dead, out of disney <laughs> well hopefully we run out of disney movies and we can go and do some some more animated movies that are maybe outside the realm of just the mouse but that's my my all-time favorite cartoon i think is the betty boop um snow white or um the the seven dwarves sleep mutant seven dwarves i think that has because, a jazz. Is that got Louis Armstrong or Cab Calloway? Yeah, in it? that's I, okay. Yeah, I that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it work. <laughs> I know I've seen it. I just yeah, I you know that's the one with I, mean, I can't remember his name. It's like Bozo, the, not Bozo the clown, but it's like the ghost clown doing the the little dance. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's Calloway. Yeah. 
Anyway, so I was much more excited when Betty Boop showed up uh, watching it this time because it, it's been a good 20 years since I watched this movie. Um, She's I very problematic I, at this point. Yeah, I watched. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> but I watched it so much because this is one of the first affordable uh, VHSs, I believe, that, you know, like mass market VHS in 1989, because that's still when rentals cost like well, not rentals. Uh, movies cost like 100 bucks with the idea that people would be renting them and making their money back. <clears throat> but this had a, a you know, it was like 20 bucks or something. So we got the VHS. Yeah, I remember that. It was that and it was like Woody Woodpecker and like there was a whole bunch of like really classics that you could go and and uh and rent easily and Betty Boop was one of the and ironically Popeye, which is kind of weird that they got Betty Boop but they didn't get Popeye. Yeah. But the whole point is um you know Roger Rabbit because you could just own it for relatively cheap. Yeah, I watched it like literally a hundred times somewhere around 1990 and uh and that you know i it's one of those things it's right like in ghostbusters or back to the future and we just did return a jedi for a podcast and all of us like well we don't really have to watch it again we did i I think one guy just um jumped to certain scenes but uh you know it's like (laughs) talk about this movie without watching it's fine but uh it it was fun watching this one after such a long time so I also had fun last weekend because my daughter doesn't know who Roger Rabbit is. So I showed her a picture of Roger Rabbit and had her guess what Jessica Rabbit looks like. And that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica uh, Rabbit also, I get, I would assume problematic. But yeah, she's like embedded as one of the all time like cartoon hotties, right? Along with who's the Lola Bunny, I think, from Space Jam and the, the princess from Dragon's Lair. Sophia, and, uh, I can't remember her name. Daphne. And uh, what was in the... In the Heathcliff cartoon, it was the junkyard gang, and um, one of them has like a ridiculous uh, cat girlfriend or something. Which, when you look at it as an adult, you're like, "Ooh, that's not right." Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Riff Raff's I girlfriend. I, I know, I know who Heathcliff is, but I don't remember the uh, the voluptuous uh, feline cartoon it's, lady. It's, it's Riff Raff's Riff Raff's girlfriend on Heath Heathcliff, and yeah, um, Riff Raff's girlfriend was hot. Yeah, I, I want to say the name was Arlene, but that's Garfield's girlfriend, so that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> Arlene not being a particularly hot, hot cat. Um, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a weird concept about being attracted to a cartoon. It's, it's, I don't know, it's weird. It, it's again, it's like a cheat code. Yeah, that, that's why I'm kind of bringing up the the Heathcliff one, just because it's like that seems wrong for Saturday morning television. <laughs> And what else? I had an, another note here, a little bit more of a vague one, but the interaction between alcohol and Roger Rabbit, I feel like there might be something to that because Roger Rabbit already exists in this. I can only imagine a reality if anything's possible and your body is malleable and you can bounce around and act any way you want. There's really no I con- like a concept of inebriation or being intoxicated or being you know, in this like other dimension because they're always in that other dimension. So alcohol has this really unique effect on Roger. And I don't know about other cartoon characters in general, but he literally blows off steam. He turns into this big, I guess, you know, like steam whistle and blows the steam out and like wrecks the whole area around him. But it feels like that's almost like this nuclear reaction, you know, like they're taking this substance from the mundane world which if you think about it, alcohol is one of our most coveted substances. Like if, if like the oldest, you know, Egyptian sites, they found beer mills and it's kind of always, it's even like saved our lives a few times through, you know, international pandemics and stuff. 
but the alcohol interacting with this cartoon world feels like another example of like here's how something can break or here's how you can almost tear like a rift in the the rules of this world so i, well, I kind of want to revisit the world and make everyone get drunk and see what happens well it's like in toon world none of the tunes can die unless it's funny i guess they could die if, if but the dip is a different substance not from toonland we see two deaths with at least two i guess the weasels get it too don't they but the All shoe them, yeah. the shoe they turn, but they turn into ghosts yeah and the shoe doesn't turn into a ghost right which also is like is what's a truly that rule? disturbing death and judge doom even though he's you know as villainous as possible it's a very disturbing death right <laughs> And that shoe also, I believe, was Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, but, the shoe that, that gets killed. Yeah, and, and that, you know, the dip is like, what, what I feel like there's got to be some kind of alchemical, you know, um, metaphor for the dip, just as this one thing that can destroy the undestroyable, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the inversion of the Philosopher's Stone. Like in, instead of reaching enlightenment, this actually destroys another reality. This this sends you more into, uh, I guess, uh, an ignorant world where there's less dimensions to it. Maybe, yeah, because yeah, it, I guess. But also, we, that the was weasels the weasels goes because it's funny. The weasels are still trying; they, they can't laugh. <laughs> but there's that's the thing; they die laughing, right? They don't die from dip, so it's right. Still... They they kill themselves laughing, which. Uh, again the ending is where it's it stretches a little bit but it's like you're already at the end so there's not well, they a lot die when it's about. funny right they die when it's funny so <laughs> do they is that the funniest scene is, it's not is the funniest Bob scene but... hoskins dance and tell bad jokes is that really the funniest scene i don't think it is it's not the funniest scene but i mean in that case they have to do the thing that is funny and that is is dying and turning into ghosts so um being funny doesn't necessarily mean you're being the funniest right so <laughs> i guess so yeah i guess so but, um, that is amusing i i didn't even realize this until i was looking at the stuff this morning I'm like, man when bob hoskins did this he was only like one year older than me that blew my mind i looked that up too <laughs> yeah it wasn't he, just it's not one but it was like man this guy's only like four years older than me yeah because it still feels like he's like 20 years older than me watching this yeah you know? no but, he, uh, he feels like in a like a uh, that was funny because watching this movie, it's like I feel like a kid watching an adult still, even <laughs> though we're the same age. It's a very surreal thing to go through. That also might come from watching this way so many times when I was, you know, like 10 years old or whatever. So um does make sense a bit. And I wanted we were talking about the portable hole. Another interesting note on that is the guy that invents it based on the name on the box is calvin q calculus which i think is a direct reference to q um from you know like 007 style stories but even q was itself a reference to stanley p lavelle who worked for the cia and and made all of these wacky contraptions like he had napalm bats who were one of them and he would strap like bombs on a dolphins and like all kinds of weird like true mad scientist kind of things <laughs> this was a real person that was really making these suggestions one of them was called the aunt jemima bomb which i think they actually used pancake mix as part of like an explosive it was uh it was a, a different time but that's just an interesting correlation between stanley p lavelle and then q and then calvin q calculus 
um again this this military intelligence cartoon crossover that keeps rearing its head that we're seeing in the series i think yeah okay all i noticed uh as an as watching us now as a kid is that eddie's got a maltese falcon in his place so I would not nice. have noticed that um, when I was a kid. But CIA now, reference. Yeah, he hangs his hat on it. So, <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what I. Oh yeah, yeah. Getting back to shaving a haircut. The note I didn't say is is, is shaving a haircut in that uh, CIA handbook you you've been mentioning. <laughs> if you ever capture a tune, you you use that. I guess I don't know. That could be their reality check. Um, I guess my last shaving a haircut, which is also feels like a cop knock I, I know i watch a lot of live pd and they do the thing the dut 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 and then they'll wait you know it's Until more like the friendly it? knock <laughs> yeah maybe um i just got two final thoughts one is is this the last time anybody saw droopy who's running the elevator i feel like droopy has never shown up again after this so maybe for droopy. a few i do too well, mitch, That's mitch I... mcconnell took that role i think Okay, so Mitch McConnell is now droopy. Got you. He is now uh, droopy. Yeah, yeah. The the other one was just I was wondering, and and uh, is this the first time peop, uh, a major production had gone this retro animation for the first several minutes of the film, where they're completely trying to make it look like something that had been animated thirty years earlier? Because like we talked, Black Cauldron, all these movies kind of like are pushing the ball, and this one is the first one to be like. Eh, let's make it look like the old stuff and not not as in like sleeping beauty old stuff but as in the old like boilerplate stuff that's a good question i mean I, I feel like there's no other way they could have done it successfully with this this cast because then what are you going to do you're going to bring a bunch of timeless characters into a new format um while also having it pay homage to them i mean they did it with the new space jam and i don't think it was very successful so I don't know. I, I, hopefully, this was during a period when Disney, as a company, was still making good decisions, you know, artistically. Yeah, I, I know. I haven't seen too much of. I have heard that uh, in the newer Mickey Mouse shorts that Mickey Mouse is insane again. So that's kind of nice. Um, and this, and this also was a cool movie because at the beginning they show. I don't know the names for them, but there's like the evil devil um daffy or uh devil donald and there's like wacky daffy i think what they're called which are like their alternate egos right they're their their mk ultra alters that get switched <laughs> on and off with certain triggers and those are kind of like rarities to see those those guys in there so I, I thought that was like a really cool nod to to see those ones i mean this is this might be the first time mickey wasn't completely milk toast in in 50 years i i was listening to some people and they were talking about just from an artistic perspective but then you start thinking about it as like a um you know entity thing where they're like mickey when he started was horrible and interesting and crazy and then they look took this part of mickey and made donald duck out of that they took this part you know made other characters and by the late 30s mickey's not interesting anymore because they've given all of his interesting character aspects to other characters that mickey can no longer have because he has to interact with them which I thought was an interesting theory to because people are like, why is Mickey Mouse so bland? You know, and maybe that's why, because all the other characters you like have parts of him. But when you watch those really early shorts, uh, you know, Mickey's completely insane. Yeah, it, it's like uh, maybe a, a strained analogy. It's like Wu-Tang, like the first <laughs> few albums as a group were just insane and new and groundbreaking. And then it kind of dispersed and like 
what made those albums so unique everyone went out and did their like their solo things and got it out of their system and then when they try to come back together it's you know it's a little bit more like modern mickey versus classic mickey yeah yeah for sure um i think i've hit all of my notes so if you got any other thoughts you want to throw at this uh, a couple other things I, I just had a, a a silly note that benny the cab establishes another cartoon role and he's like if you ever need me just stick out your thumb and i was like is that where this mechanic for grand theft auto like first got thought up it was actually <laughs> here in who framed roger rabbit where it's like oh if i need to go anywhere just stick your thumb out and a car just pulls up next to you um there was this meta thing too where roger rabbit goes into a movie theater when they're hiding out and they're watching a goofy um like an old goofy clip that they would play before news um clips and he makes this note and he's like oh man another stupid news rule i hate the news and i feel like this was extra meta because during the time period that this movie takes place they would show cartoons before the newsreels so that was always like the intro into it but now you've got a cartoon character going into a theater seeing the pre-roll and then seeing the news that comes after it which normally they wouldn't see because they were in the movie and not watching the movie um and then having them comment on the news but that news clip is actually the big aha moment that valiant has because it's where they're going like you know oh the the maroon cartoon network you know the biggest real estate deal in california history and he was like that's it that's what they're trying to do and that's when he realizes about the red line and about them trying to buy up all the real estate because ultimately the plot point of this movie spoiler alert i guess <laughs> i don't think it really ruins it in any way but that uh judge doom wants to buy all the real estate of toontown and then just decimate it with this dip this like green chemical that's a mixture of uh like turpentine and acetone and benzidine or something and it just washes all the cartoons away and he gets rid of it and then he's going to put a freeway in place of toontown uh which also begs this like really interesting aspect of Maybe it did used to be a Toontown in reality, and they really did replace it with the L.A. freeway, and we would never really know, right? Because this is a documentary. Happened. Yeah, this the, maybe this is a documentary on some aspect. I'm from um, the hometown, then... but I never made it to the world of Sidomari Croft, did I? <laughs> it turned into CNN Center, and CNN lives there. And uh, and what else? Oh, so this one was also a, a random tangent that I went on. But right before Eddie goes into Toontown, there's this transition. Like before he's before he's ready to fully embrace the entire Toon world, he breaks open this old gun case that he's got. And inside the gun case is a cartoon gun with a bunch of cartoon bullets. So it shows you like, okay, he's about to interact with the cartoon world on like some of his terms, which happens to be this gun before he he jumps fully in. But these guns that he breaks out, they're called dum-dums. And if you look into, I was just like, why do they call them dum-dums? Uh, because obviously it's a, it's a joke because they're in a cartoon and, you know, like dum-dum as in dummy-dummy. Um, but the dum-dum bullets, it's actually named after the dum-dum arsenal. And the dum-dum arsenal outside of these dum-dum bullets, which they got their name from, they also were famous because during the Indian Rebellion of 1857, um, they were coating the they they were fighting Muslims and coating the bullets in the grease of like pig fat and then telling the people that they were firing at 
like, hey, these are going to send you straight to, you know, another another realm that you don't want to go to because you're now going to be considered unclean. They were actually using, you know, pig's blood on the bullets to turn it not just into um, like you're going to die, but now you're also going to go to hell on top of that. And they actually had to like change all these rules. Like there was a huge revolt against it, but it was extremely efficient, apparently. Um, and it just reminded reminded me again, that's where the, the word dum dums comes from. Like this is the history of the dum dum bullets. And uh I guess Roosevelt also uh was part of of some of, of these uh old stories. And it reminded me of there was like news stories recently in the US, something called G Hog bullets where they would put like a little bits of paint on the very tips, but the paint was mixed with like pig's blood or something. So I don't know. I thought that it was just, it was a weird tangent of something that I never would have learned about without this movie. I'm just like, Hey, if someone shoots you, it's, it's their fault, not yours. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess technically uh, based on like the Quran, it doesn't really count. Like if, if you get shot by a bullet, that's got pig blood on it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make it any more special than any other bullet would have so it really was just an outrage sort of thing that someone you know made a profit and made a product off of which is just the best part of capitalism but yeah anyways to rewind that back it all came from where did dum-dum bullets came from why are they called dum-dum bullets don't we have the lollipops too i thought we were going to get a lollipop story and we got something much the lollipop darker. story oh from the, the dum-dum <laughs> company yeah, yeah. So that that's where my head first went. So who was the one that had the Salvador Dali logo? Ch- Chupa, Chupa lollipop. Chupa chips. That's right. Yeah. There's a there's a Chupa chips chips. I don't know. You can barely read it. There's one at the mall nearby. And when my daughter was like two or three years old, she would like just stare at it, and it's like singing this weird song. So we never <laughs> bought the lollipops because n- nobody wanted the lollipop. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is a weird logo. You'll just you do trip out looking at that logo. So. <laughs> For sure. Um, uh, let's see. I've, I've, I mean, I had a bunch of other notes, but we kind of covered the freeway conspiracy stuff. Oh, and there's a lot of correlations too between Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Chinatown. And in Chinatown, they have a similar conspiracy, but it has to do with the water supply and not the public transport. But there's also a scene in Chinatown where they're going back through some old photos, like voyeuristic, you know, private investigator photos. And those that scene reflects very much the scene in um, Roger Rabbit when they're showing the patty cake photos and also the car that Jessica Rabbit sits in and drives resembles the car from the Chinatown movie. So there was clearly some like tongue in cheek and and some kind of like homage being paid, I think, to some of that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think I would. My last note is it's only Chinatown after all. So (laughs) it's my final note there. Um. I guess the one thing is we're mentioning, you know, the the conspiracy of getting rid of Toontown, building the freeways. But that is that was a major issue in 1940s and 1950s America as they built the entire interstate system that went through cities. And you when you have to take out a neighborhood, guess which neighborhoods getting taken out, you know, the more vulnerable ones or Toontown. <laughs> yeah. Or neighborhoods being split in two where you had like maybe a cohesive community of um a lot of of these were african-american communities and they're saying ah freeway straight through the middle of your town so not not the other parts of town 
Um, well, and it was it was uh, advantageous to so many different people, not just for like, let's get this community out of this area that we don't want them in. But another aspect was very much a real conspiracy where the oil companies and the public transport companies really were buying up railways and really were just letting them deteriorate and not maintain them and then making the argument of, oh, you know, this is just this old dilapidated technology. It can't compete with all the modern stuff and instead of doing high speed railways like you basically have in other countries like we're just going to go all in on this you know personal transportation thing and that was a very real aspect of this like company oil companies really did buy up railroad companies and then put more of their focus into you know fossil fuels and and uh, automobile companies and not so much into the railways yeah because uh here i mean i can get pretty much anywhere by train if i'm willing to pay for it um i could take the highways i don't take the highways very often they're not freeways you got to pay for them but they tend to go around the cities which can be annoying but again that way you don't have to go straight through the city um you know the most tokyo has its notorious not not well, it has its free expressway system excuse me not freeway but um, yeah, that's been used in movies to show space travel, like uh, in Solaris. I think Kayana Scotsy has a bunch of Tokyo highway sequences because it's so trippy. But yeah, there they did kind of have to go through the city itself, which is when you think about it now, I mean, think about the city you live in. If they're suddenly like, we're going to build a massive highway through here, it's going to really throw a wrench in things. <laughs> well, they, they just did that in Orlando. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But they're always know. doing that in Orlando. Okay. Let's pull in for today then um do you want to talk about what's what's going on in your world as of pretty much now i do and also i just want to mention that that kid's name that got hurt on that disney ride in disneyland on the the roger rabbit ride his name was brandon zucker and he was what? four years old at the yeah. time what was when did that happen it happened in i didn't put the that date down it was in the, the 90s i think okay. it was in like 98 or 99 or something Okay, just just curious about that. Okay, hell of a way to start your your plug, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so I, yeah, I definitely want to shout out if any of that was interesting. I've got this time samplers three um issue, and this time samplers is based on the wake initiated lucid dreams. There's Disney references inside of this. There's like the MK Ultra mind control. This particular issue, issue three, is the one that breaks down um project monarch in illustrated detail so this is like one of my favorite uh books out of all of those and yeah there's there's all sorts of inside references to the, the animation industry and the other really big one is the homunculus owner's manual that just came out recently that i put out with my friend juan from the one-on-one -on -one podcast and this has got 33 pages over 70 unique illustrations and it breaks down the history of what a homunculus is how to create them, different cultures, different alchemical grimoires that mention them, all of the rumored magical abilities that you can get from creating them. Uh, and it's it's really a unique thing because not a lot of people have, let alone looked into all the research and compiled it together, but then come up with illustrations to kind of like visually show all these really weird aspects of how to make a homunculus. It gets really kind of weird and creepy. And uh, I guess the last plug is, my own personal YouTube channel now, Paranoid American, where I've got some interviews that'll be coming out. I'll probably have you on there at some point pretty soon. 
Um, and then I've also got a website now called occultdecode.com, which it's gonna it has right now a gamatria calculator and it also has a banned word list because one of the some of the videos I've been trying to put on my YouTube they get flagged. So I'm having to find creative words to replace the words that I want to say. One of those examples is a is a substance that's derived from adrenaline, which decomposes and turns into another substance. But if you say the word out loud or put it on the screen, you get your wrist slapped by uh, by YouTube and Alphabet and everyone else. So the substitute for that word is thrill oxide. So if you went to occultdecode.com, you can either type in thrill oxide or you can type in A-D-R-E-N so and so and so. And if, if you just type in the first few letters, you'll see here's the word that you want to say and here's the word you can say in place of it. And it even blurs the words out for you if you turn on the safe screen option. So if you're like live streaming and you want to figure out like, how do I say, you know, beep or how do I say beep? <laughs> you know, we've got the actual substitutes for you. The other day it came in really handy. Someone wanted to say like, oh, uh, the thing that, you know, police have and it, you know, it fires things out. I didn't want to say the thing <laughs> because it was like in a sketchy area. And I was like, yeah, it's a super soaker. And it's like, okay, now that makes sense. Yeah. So the cop, you know, aimed his super soaker at the bad guy and he splashed him, you know, and now all of a sudden you're allowed to say these words and it's advertiser friendly. So yeah, occultdecode.com. It's going to turn into like a really cool, I guess, like decoder ring for naughty words. That's, that's my hope. As for us, it's a caught Disney podcast. Actually, your YouTube page of Paranoid American is probably not a bad way to, uh, drop us a, a a note or something if you want to and uh, talking about getting slapped on the wrist i also bought occultdisney.com it just redirects to our playlist in case someone thinks that that domain's legit it's not you're not allowed to own a domain that has the word disney.com in it but i just wanted to make sure if you accidentally were to think that you could go to occultdisney.com that it actually does redirect you to our youtube playlist so occultdisney.com is definitely not a website that should exist, but if you go to it, it might redirect you. And I also grabbed occultanimation.com in case something happens to occultdisney.com. Right, right. Um, as for a moment, we're also still on on Twitter or whatever it's called. I don't know. I get fun. I get I get mostly theme park notices for for that account, so that's <laughs> kind of exciting, I guess. You're in the alg in the algorithm. That's right, and um. I do a lot of podcasts, which you could support on Patreon at Podcastio Podcastius. I also talk about what's supposed to be really good movies and what are supposed to be really bad movies at Films and Filth, The Twilight Zone, and other shows of that nature at Time Enough Podcast. And there's some video game stuff. Luke loves Pokemon for the Pokemon lover. Hyrule Field Report for those into Zelda and the game game show where gamers game each other. Woo! Okay. Off to Toontown then. Back again 
Wow. 